gospel together this morning. I pray that you're making the gospel known to us and everything that we do uh, as we uh, hear, the, hear your word preached, as we sing uh, these songs together, as we uh, as teach the kids, as we run sound, as we everything that we're doing this morning, would we just be uh, reminding each other of the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use us in that way and that you would... Uh, do that in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that now that your Holy Spirit would uh, would use your word to, to speak to each one of us as we need to be spoken to, that you would uh, say what you once said, not what I would say alone. And um, may you be glorified above all. In Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody remember those uh, magic eye paintings? You know what I'm talking about? Real classic works of art. Um, if you don't know who they are, the whole painting kind of looks like it's like some sort of like patterned scribble all over, you know, a page. Uh, maybe it looks kind of like the, the black and white static on a television, but like maybe a little bit more pattern to it, uh, but it, in different colors and whatnot. And, and the idea of these paintings is you would like look through the static, right? You look through the scribble, and you could see like a, a 3D image come out of it, like a, a lion would pop out of the, the painting or a boat or something like that. Or maybe like a beach scene, whatever. These things were really big back in the 90s. Like I remember going to the mall, and if they weren't having a baseball card show, they were having a magic eye art show. And you would just see people like all through the mall just like like staring into these paintings, you know, for looking really ridiculous. Um, but that's because they could be hard to see at first, right? It could take a little bit while. Maybe you had to, like, if you had it in, like, a book, you'd have to, like, try to start here and then, like, move the book away from you. Whatever, you're trying to look through to see this image pop out, and you'd look pretty ridiculous the whole time, no matter when, how you were looking at it. Uh, but then all of a sudden, it would just happen for you, or at least that's my experience. Like, all of a sudden, the image would pop out of the page, would pop off the paper, and I'd be able to see it. And then once I saw it, I almost couldn't unsee it. Like, I could look away, do something else, look back at the painting, bam, there's that lion again, right? It's pretty amazing. So you knew, like, when you saw one of these paintings, that it wasn't just something pretty to look at. Because it wasn't really that pretty to look at, honestly. It's just a bunch of scribble on a page. But you knew that there was more to it, that there was more to be seen, that there was more uh, than meets the eye. And this is kind of how I've been reading Micah in a way. Maybe it's been your experience. Maybe you've had a similar experience as mine. Like, Like at first glance, on your first read through, Micah can be a little bit hard to follow, right? It kind of can be like a little staticky. It's not a narrative. It's not super, it's not like a super clear story to follow. And there's a lot of conflicting stuff going on, seemingly, like judgment and doom, but also mercy and hope. Like, and it's just back and forth through it all. And it seems like Jesus is probably being pointed to in there in some places, uh, but it's sort of just a mess, and it's hard to really grasp what's going on. And many of the minor prophets just aren't like other books, right? We keep seeing that. Many of them just aren't neat and organized little pictures and stories to read, but If you look deeper, there's more than meets the eye. There's a a full-orbed picture that the prophet is painting. And I think that the picture that pops out of Micah is a picture of 
what is our, our true relationship with God and what is our true worship? What does it really look like? I think there's more than meets the eye in our, in our relationship with God and, and in how we worship him. There's more to be seen than what we see on a surface level. And there are some underlying realities that I think we need to recognize and that we need to come to grips with. And I think Micah helps us get there. So let's take a hard look and see what we can find. We're, we're in the last two chapters of Micah today, chapter 6 and 7, finishing that out. And I'm going to read from Micah 6. Chapter 9, I mean, Micah chapter 6, verses 9 through 16. It says this, The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. This is what he says, Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of the wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I quit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be a hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Now, in the first verse of this whole book, in Micah chapter 1, we learn that Micah was a prophet during the reign of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, who were all kings of Judah. And then this book is kind of organized into like three sermons or three sermon compilations almost, right? And that's kind of how we've walked through the book is through these sermons. As Reggie uh, mentioned last week, the prophet Jeremiah records uh, that Micah 3 and 4, the second of the three sermons in the book, uh, was spoken to King Hezekiah. And that actually makes this, these verses in chapter 6, verses 9 through 16, a little bit troublesome. I'm going to tell you why, but, but to tell you why, you're going to have to bear with me as we, we kind of get there by, by giving some backstory, okay? Reggie also mentioned last week how God had delivered Hezekiah and the people from the, land of this, from the hand of the Assyrians, uh, and how in the midst of all this like talk of coming judgment and coming doom, God rescued them, God showed mercy, and he delivered them from Assyria. And if you don't know, like, the whole story of Hezekiah, personally, it's one of my favorites. It's a really good one. And it's a very pivotal, his reign is like a very pivotal moment in the history of Judah. And so if you go back uh, through 2 Kings, uh, you'll read of each king of Israel and the kings of Judah. That's what First and Second Kings are really doing, giving you some history through all the kings. Uh, and with each introduction, you're going to read something to the effect of, Something like this, right? Like this king, so-and-so, whatever his name might be, he was so-and-so many years old when he became king, and his mother was so-and-so, and he did what was good, or, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
right? That's just on repeat throughout the whole, the whole deal. And as for Israel, when it's naming the kings of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, there's a long line of kings who are said to do what is evil inside of the Lord. They worshiped other gods and they led the people to sin also. That's on repeat through there. They heard many prophets issue warnings through all that time. We've already gone through some of those with Amos and all those. Uh, They've heard prophets speak into that, um, similar to how Micah is speaking to Judah here in this book. And they didn't listen, and eventually they fell to the Assyrians, and they went into exile, right? Now, in Judah, that's the southern kingdom. This is where Micah is prophesying. There's some of the same. Like idols are raised into the high places, foreign gods are being worshipped, and kings do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That is on repeat. But with Judah, there are several kings who had said of that they do right in the sight of the Lord, Only with this one exception, though, that they didn't crush the idols in the high places, that they didn't do as well as King David did in their worship. Now, Ahaz, one of the kings of Micah's time and Hezekiah's father. I know this is a lot. Just track with me for a minute, okay? Ahaz, one of the kings of Micah's time and Hezekiah's father, was one of the worst kings of Judah ever. He set up foreign gods in the temple. He removed the treasures um, that pointed to God in his presence that were with his people. And he replaced them with treasures from foreign lands and foreign gods uh, and foreign nations. And when Ahaz was attacked and he needed help, he didn't turn to God. He turned to the king of Assyria. He went directly to him and he made a deal to serve him. And so Judah, this is God's people under the leadership of Ahaz, became an idolatrous people who worshipped foreign gods and sought prosperity over the welfare of others, who sought their own prosperity uh, by going to other nations instead of even to their own God. They were out for themselves, and therefore they became an oppressive people. They were unjust. They were without mercy. And this is the environment that Micah's first sermon of judgment and doom was likely addressed to. So we've already covered that one. Then there's the second sermon in Micah. Hezekiah is king. That's Ahaz's son. And Hezekiah hears these same type of warnings from Micah and from Isaiah, actually. And when Assyria eventually comes to take Judah, Hezekiah does different than his father does. He doesn't turn to other nations and other powers to save him. He turns to God. And he cries out for help from God. And God delivers them. Like amidst all the warnings of judgment and doom, Hezekiah uh, asks for help and God delivers. He sends an angel to cut off the Assyrian army and he sends them running back home. And if you go back to Second Kings and Second Chronicles, what's recorded uh, of Hezekiah is different than all the previous kings. It says this, Second Chronicles 29.2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. And that's a huge difference from all the kings who had come before him, who had always fallen just short of doing as good as David. Everyone before Hezekiah either did what was evil or they did pretty good, but always they didn't do as much as David in the way of worship until Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18.4 says this. It says that he removed the high places and he broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. 
And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. See, Hezekiah heard Micah's message, and he heard Isaiah's message, and he responded well. He responded very well. So here's the trouble I said that there was with this last passage. This third sermon, which we're in today in chapter 6 and 7. It's that Hezekiah, who did well and reformed Judah's worship, was the last king of Micah's time, according to the verse, of, verse 1 of the book, right? So why does he now bring another indictment on a king who has turned and brought such reform? Like, chapter 6, verse 2 says, Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And the rest of chapter 6 is basically a lawsuit, culminating with this verdict that we just read a little bit ago in chapter 6, 9 through 16, of judgment and destruction and exile. But Hezekiah had already heard, right? He had responded, and things were different so why this indictment why this judgment is God unwilling to show mercy even after such reform like remember when we went in Jonah God showed mercy to the Ninevites for doing far less they just fasted and put on some sackcloth and ashes for a little bit and said you're right we've sinned and God was like all right we're not going to wipe you out then but now we got this uh, impending judgment and destruction and exile against a kingdom that has reformed their worship. So what's going on? Before we can answer, I think we got to finish telling this Hezekiah story. It's well documented. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, Isaiah. <coughs> excuse me. You can go back and take a look at all this stuff. And at the end of his life, at the end of Hezekiah's life, Hezekiah had done well. On the whole, he brought about major positive reform, right? Turning people back to God. But at the end, there's something really major exposed that we're going to have to see. See, Hezekiah gets sick. He gets like deathly ill. And God actually sends Isaiah, the prophet, to tell Hezekiah, hey, get your affairs in order because this is it. You're going to die. But Hezekiah prays for God to remember like how, how he had done well and how he had followed God and how he brought about reform. And he asked to be healed and he asked to have more time added to his life. And God hears him, right? And he sends Isaiah back with a message that Hezekiah will live for 15 more years. And then he says that as a sign that this is God doing this, uh, he will turn back, he'll turn the shadow from the sundial back 10 steps. We should probably pause and say that's really strange, right? Because God does that. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know if he, like, turned the earth backwards. Or I, don't, I don't really know, to be honest. Something pretty major happened, right, where God was like, I, did, I just turned the earth backwards, so, yeah, it was me who healed you. Something like that, right? He does it. Hezekiah is healed, and Hezekiah asked for then another sign as to when he should be uh, when he should go to the house of the Lord and give thanks and give an offering for, to, to God. But right after he asked that question, an envoy shows up from the Babylonians. Um, 
They heard that Hezekiah had been sick and that he had recovered. They also noticed that something had happened where the earth turned backwards, maybe, and uh, they're looking for some answers. Uh, and in Second Chronicles, it says they wanted to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land. So believe it or not, other nations noticed what's going on in the world. Uh, the world stopped, turned away, whatever. And they knew that Hezekiah had like this miraculous recovery. And so they come looking for answers. And they come to Hezekiah, the king who has actually got the answer. He's the one person who probably really knows what's happened. He's the king who just was healed, who prayed and saw the sun turn backward. And, and Hezekiah is set up then to make God known to this like world superpower. They've come knocking at his door. And 2 Chronicles 32, 31 says this, that when the Babylonians came, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. And Hezekiah fails miserably. Like he never made it to the house of the Lord to offer thanks for the healing or to worship. He opens up the doors of the Babylonians. He's playing host. He wants to show off all his greatness and all his great stuff. And Isaiah 39, 2 says that Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house. He showed them the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in the storehouses. They showed up looking for answers, and instead of telling them about God, Hezekiah shows them his treasures. And he fails because the treasure of his heart has now been exposed. The true treasure of his heart is exposed. He doesn't treasure God. That is not what he shows the envoy. Instead, his treasure is revealed to be all these material things. And ultimately, his treasure is power and prestige among the rich and the powerful of the world. He struggles with pride, and his pride is put on display. Now, I share that whole story because I think it's telling as to why Micah would write this lawsuit in chapter 6 after all the reform and why God would hand down this verdict of judgment and punishment and exile, likely to this king who had done much in the way of turning his people back to God. See, Ahaz before him had set up foreign gods and idols all over the land, like we said, and the people worshipped these foreign gods and idols. And all of it was for the building of their own worldly prosperity, right? But Hezekiah does change all that. But what is still true, even of Hezekiah, is that God is not his treasure. Like God is worshipped in order to get more treasure and to prosper himself. Like when Isaiah tells him that because of what he has shown the Babylonians, the kingdom will fall into their hands and his own sons will become eunuchs in the house of, these, of this power, Hezekiah is pleased because it won't happen while he's still alive and his days will be prosperous. See, God is, is like worshipped on the surface level. Like all the houses have been turned into God houses and not other idol houses. And people bring their offerings and sacrifices and whatnot to them there. God is worshipped, but he's worshipped like they would just worship other gods. To appease them. To make sure that you continue to prosper. That's the only reason you worship this God. Because the rich still oppress the poor. 
people are still exploited for the gain of others, and there's still no mercy in the land. People aren't bowing down to carved images anymore, but they aren't, but they're worshiping God like they would just worship any other carved image, right? There's still no justice. There's no mercy. God's not being made known anywhere. He's not being glorified. Hence, the indictment and the verdict of chapter 6. God is not like those lifeless idols. He isn't like any other God or fictitious, fictitious stories that surround them. He isn't looking to be appeased. He isn't looking to be paid off for some gifts. Like while all other idols of that day and of our day, they all promise to give us treasures that they really can't even deliver. See, God promises to be our treasure. And, to require, and he requires us to treasure him over all else. While they offer treasures, he offers to be our treasure. And it's evident that this is what God requires. Micah 6, 6 through 8 shows us. In the first few verses of this chapter, God uh, makes the indictment by way of questioning like their memory. saying, like, Basically saying, like, uh, don't you remember who I really am? Remember what I've done, how I've been with you. Don't you remember whose you are? Like He isn't like other gods for sure. He's proven his presence with them in their own story, right? He's set them apart. He gave them a promised land. He's driven them out. He's driven out other gods and nations from before them and given them a purpose. And in Micah 6, 6 through 8, God furthers the case as he voices how the people might respond to his indictment because of their blindness and their inability to see that there is more than meets the eye. That there is more to be seen beneath the surface level of our worship. Micah 6, 6 through 8, it says this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? See, in their blindness, they would respond to the indictment wondering where they had gone wrong, right? Like, don't we, don't we do right now in making our offerings to you instead of to a foreign god's? Like, what should we be bringing to appease you? Maybe we haven't brought enough. What should we give you in order to make you happy so that things can get, get going again? And God is saying, like, hey, that's the wrong questions. You're asking the wrong questions. It's not about what you're bringing me. You don't love me. You don't treasure me. You aren't walking with me. So in reality, you don't worship me at all, no matter where you take your offerings or your sacrifices. He doesn't want offerings and sacrifices. He wants people who really know who he is, that he's good, that he's just, that he's merciful. And he wants them to trust in him and follow his ways in all of life. He wants them to treasure him above all and make him and his character and his works known everywhere and to everybody. And they are failing to see what's at the heart of worship. So chapter 6, this punishment. This indictment is handed down. And it's really, though, so that the truth of who God is will be seen once and for all. 
This is an old story. It's an old indictment. It's an old verdict, right? But it's heartbreaking to me. Because Judah seems to like have come so close to getting it right, only to be so far away and to fail so miserably. It's also heartbreaking because I know that while, that while it's very old and a lot has happened since, particularly in and through the person and work of Jesus, I know that we still fail in the same way. We are so much like the people of Israel and Judah. We get stuck somewhere between worshiping foreign idols and worshiping God. We try to worship God like we would worship our worldly idols. We consent to the truth that God is one and that there is no other, that he's the only one to be worshiped, and we pay him tribute with our tithes and maybe our offerings. We go to church. We eat Chick-fil-A. Uh, we, you know, we're building our lives around an identity that we call Christian, right? That means that we're followers of Christ. Yet the question is, left to yourself, left to yourself to show the world what you really treasure and what you put on display, what would it be? Would it be God? Would he be your treasure? Is that what you're opening up when people are coming and looking? Or is it your successes and your wealth and your accolades or a number of other things? Is it your idols? We are idolaters. And throughout this book, we've seen Micah show this evidence that your and my idolatry leads us to sin. Idolatry leads to sin, and your sins are not just a thing that's between you and God. It's definitely that, but also it's tearing the world apart. We've become corrupt together. We confessed earlier. We're tearing the world apart and tearing people apart, and by remaining blind to and rejecting the truth about who God is and what he does and who that makes us and how we ought to live, by rejecting that and being blind to it, we operate as if we are God in truth. Like we live in some surface level reality where we somehow believe that we can glorify ourselves and determine what is good and right, but really all we do is oppress and exploit and break God's creation in the process. And we've got to come to terms with the truth that our sin is sick and it's devastating. Our sins are devastating beyond ourselves. In Micah 7, then, we turn from lawsuit to lament. In Micah 7, verses 1 through 3, I'll read this. It says, Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. They become corrupt together. The lament goes on through verse 6. You know, when you're looking through one of those magic eye paintings, like, like I said, you have to kind of like go cross-eyed. You've got to sort of like look through the painting in order to see it rightly, and there's a trick to it. But you've got to see it differently in order to see the whole picture. Similarly, if we're to see the truth about 
what is true of our relationship with God, like beyond that surface level, and what's true about our worship of God. If we're going to see that, then if we're going to see the, the, the reality of the impact of our idolatry and sin, uh, I'm sorry, seeing the reality of our idolatry and sin is necessary for us to see the truth of our relationship with God. And Micah gets personal here in chapter 7. He says, woe is me. Right, he says from the start of the lament. It's what Isaiah exclaims back in Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And here Micah laments in the same way. He says, woe is me. Like our idolatry has led us to sin, which is tearing everything apart. Micah can see the reality of the brokenness that's all around him, that no one is upright, that they lie in wait for one another, for blood. They are hunting each other, it says. They are evil, and evil is everywhere. And there's nobody who can make it right again. Everybody's blindly playing God, rejecting the true God, and there's nothing but ruin ahead of us. Micah sees. We cannot reconcile ourselves to him. Hezekiah was as close as we could get, and his failure exposes the failure of us all. We don't and we cannot treasure God on our own. This is what it's like to lament our sin and idolatry, to realize it's a real thing and that it impacts, it has impact and influence outside of ourselves even. It's to all of a sudden see through the painting and see the reality underneath the facade begin to pop out, to see that my idolatry exists and that it's leading to sin and that I am oppressing people and I am destructive and I exploit others. It's to see it in its fullness and say, woe is me, There's blood on my hands. But Micah doesn't end the book in despair. Thank God. Our sin and idolatry and its effects are not the last word here. Even our punishment is not the last word. The last word in Micah is this beautiful confession and resolve to hope. Micah 7, 7 through 9. Micah says, but as for me... I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. In the face of utter despair, Micah remembers the truth about who God is and what he does and who that makes him and his people. He knows God's promises. He knows that he's faithful always to the end. He knows that his love is steadfast and that he disciplines his children, but that he disciplines them for their good and for the good of all. So he resolves, he humbly looks to God. I love what he says there. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. And he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. What Micah understands is that confession, I think we need to hear this, 
Confession and repentance isn't meant to be just another offering or just another sacrifice to appease some angry foreign God in hopes to avoid some sort of consequence. That's not what confession is. Confession and repentance are meant to draw us into true worship. And discipline isn't an evil to be avoided when it's from God. It's a grace and it's a mercy from a just God who is restoring his children into their created image and into their created purposes for his glory and for their ultimate joy and satisfaction. Confession and repentance leads us to recognize the whole reality beneath the surface of things. That we've played God, that we rejected the true God, and then that we've served and we've acted like we are God and we've sinned, I mean, and we've crushed and we've oppressed. We've exploited others. We've made a real mess of things. It's confession and repentance says we can't fix it. Left to ourselves, we'll continue to do the same thing. We'll reject your truth and we'll oppress others. We can't reconcile ourselves to God. We need him. We need his work. And while his work may be painful, it's always good. If we would ever see this broken world that we live in restored, it will be because God works on our behalf. Only he can open our eyes to look through the surface of things and see things as they really are and reconcile us to the truth of who he really is and what he does and who that makes us. The call of Micah is to look through the surface of our worship and wake up. To see ourselves as we really are in light of God, of who God really is, and to be reconciled to him. Listen to this, how Micah closes, 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah sees through the current state of his people and resolves to hope in his God who promises a better future reality. What Hezekiah could not do, the promised coming king and Messiah, Jesus, would do. Jesus doesn't simply change our surface level worship. He goes further. He changes the treasure of our heart. You know, Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God. And in his life and death and resurrection, We see the truth of who God is and what he's like and what he does and how much he loves us. Jesus makes God known to us so that we don't remain blind, rejecting God and playing God ourselves. Jesus shows us mercy. He shows us steadfast love. He shows us compassion, forgiveness, and faithfulness. And Jesus proves that he is better than anything else that could be offered. He tramples our iniquities under his feet. And he proves that God is our greatest treasure and that we were created to treasure him. 
Like in the person and work of Jesus, we see God's power and ability to do the work of reconciling us to himself, bringing us that thing that we've rejected, reconciling us to the truth of who he is, redeeming all that we've done, all the stuff that we've done, redeeming everything we've destroyed, and restoring us to our created purposes as image bearers of God so that we might make him known in all the earth. So this morning, as you continue to read and practice uh, looking for the truth of who God is and what he does and who that makes us and how we ought to live, that's in your bulletin. You can go back and ask those questions of the scripture. But as you continue to do that, I hope that we might look through the surface level kind of seemingly mess of Micah and recognize our own idolatry. See the reality of our own sin and how it impacts and destroys and oppresses. And maybe we would resolve to hope in Jesus, treasuring him as he meets you in your weaknesses and failure with justice and mercy and grace. May you not be satisfied in just doing like the Christian culture thing, but would we want to treasure God above all? Would we see how great God really is? In Jesus, we are to be a people who make the real Jesus known in our neighborhood and in our city. It will be because we are a people who, by the grace of God, have seen through the surface reality and found that God is worthy of our whole heart and life. He's worthy of all of our attention and all of our worship. And he'll do the work of reconciliation and redemption and restoration in this world that we cannot and could never do on our own as we say, yes, Lord, with each humble step that we take with him, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. We're going to close with a time of response as we do each week. And the band will lead us.